Hey, listening audience, welcome back to Noggin Notes. My name is Jake Wiskirchen, and I'm your host. Thanks again for downloading our content. We really appreciate it. Today's topic is on veteran suicide. Now, if you're outside the U.S., uh, it may be worth noting that the term veteran in the United States often refers not just to people who are experienced at their trade, but more often to people who have retired from military service. So we, we often imply military in front of the word veteran when we say veterans. And who I interview today is a guy named Matt Miller. Uh, he has a PhD in psychology. And he is the current director of the Veterans Administration's Suicide Prevention Program. And I, th- I think the conversation is really interesting and it bears a lot of merit, especially with as many veterans as we have in this country who are struggling with uh, psychiatric symptoms from their time you know, being exposed to military duty. And a lot of them are dying at an alarming rate. And it's worth discussing. So that's what we cover in this conversation. I think you'll find it fascinating. I always learn something whenever I interview somebody, and I hope that you do also. Our sponsors, as usual, are Zephyr Wellness and Audible. If you have not checked out Audible, uh, I would be surprised, (laughs) first of all. But if you haven't and you want to get some good audio content, uh, please go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes and you can help us out while helping yourself out because what you get there is you get to enroll in a free 30-day trial subscription whereby you can download a free audiobook or any of their other content Uh, it's a really really wide selection Uh, they like to say that it's totally unmatched in any other platform but you get that free audiobook download and you get to keep it even if you cancel your your trial session there within the 30 days. So audibletrial.com slash notes. Zephyr Wellness is the other sponsor, and that's a company that I co-own in Reno and Sparks, Nevada here. Uh, we have a lots of really cool content you can download too for free. Uh, check out our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our Instagram, and our Twitter account. Uh, those are found in various ways by checking out Zephyr Wellness. Take it, share it with a friend, heal yourselves, heal the world. Make it a better place. Ah, sorry. No, I'm not Michael Jackson. Anyway, this is my interview with Dr. Matt Miller of the Veterans Administration. Enjoy. Well, on this episode of Noggin Notes, we are talking with uh, Matt Miller, PhD. Dr. Miller, how are you? I'm great. Happy to be here, Jake. Thanks for having me. Dude, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, for background for the audience, you and I met at a conference. It was a Veterans mm-hmm. Administration Lethal Means Suicide Prevention Conference in San Francisco back in February, pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were all meeting in the same room, maskless, and I'm pretty sure that's how I got sick. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how we met. You were you were one of the presenters at this uh, fantastic conference. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Um, I actually don't even know what your doctorate degree is in, but uh, you can share hmm. that and your background and all that stuff and then get into the story about how you came to came to be in this field. Great, great. Uh, yeah, actually, Jake, as I look back on it, that was my last official trip. Uh, immediately after that, uh, travel was uh, suspended. So I have not been on the road since since that trip. Um, but it was nice meeting you there, and uh, I thought that was a really, um, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was worth it in terms of the time spent there and talking about lethal mean safety and suicide prevention, and I, I think, and I look forward to the questions that you have and the discussion that you 
that you uh, have for us today regarding uh, lethal means safety and suicide prevention. Um, it, but by way of background, um, the PhD is in psychology and master's in public health. Um, I was a clinical psychologist for the United States Air Force and a captain. I served uh, during OEF, OIF. Uh, specialty was working with joint services um, uh, pilot uh, trainees. Um, during that time, uh, as uh, chief of mental health at the uh, joint services uh, training installation, um, I experienced uh, the death by suicide of a very close friend, a colleague, uh, a Marine uh, Cobra driver. Um, and as the head of suicide prevention for the installation and um, a friend, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a significant uh, blow for me uh, personally and professionally. Uh, it uh, sent me into a time of um, a lot of questions. Um, some existential, some practical, um, but I came through the time with a commitment to suicide prevention. It's not something that I was ever interested in, uh, in my training in mental health or psychology, but it uh, definitely changed my, my course. Um, I went to work and join the mission of the VA as a chief of mental health at the local level in Saginaw, Michigan, and then um, ended up as head of the Veterans Crisis Line uh, for a couple of years, which led then to now being the head of um, suicide prevention uh, for uh, the VA and, and VHA under the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. I, it's it's kind of a fancy way of saying something really important and practical that we do. And we are over the uh, policy, the programs, the research that uh, takes a look at suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention across clinical and community settings for our veterans. I want to I want to dive into that, and certainly the research, and I want to kind of unpack some of those those terms that you used, uh, you know, postvention mm -hmm. and intervention and whatnot, and prevention. But but I want to go back, if you don't mind, hover a little bit on the experience that you had of losing a friend while in a mm -hmm. mental health directorship position. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know that we have some clinicians who follow this show as well as just general audience and that that's got to give a person pause. I mean, I, like I, I work in this world, I'm a, you know, emergent family therapist by trade. And I, I, I've had some, some negative outcomes with some clients and certainly my, my interns have, and I can't really wrap my head around the idea of losing a friend when I work in the profession. It's, it seems I, I don't know. I, I guess I just, I'm asking if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more of your process through that uh, to, to maybe give some validation and some context to other people who may be struggling with, with something similar. Yeah. The, the research shows that um, somewhere between 128 to 135 
individuals are meaningfully impacted by any one suicide. And I definitely, in this situation, um, found myself within, within that group. It, it was the first time that I've experienced the overlap and, and confluence between um, personal friend, buddy, and uh, a professional role. You know, when, when you're in grad school and, and the Ivy Tower, if you will, they, they teach you clean, safe, and appropriate lines between personal and and professional and you're in the military um, particularly in a combat training uh, and implementation sort of setting um, you you live with people um, you deploy with with people and simultaneously you're serving as a mental health professional uh, in those settings and that's 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 a lot uh, like it was with John. I I would give numerous suicide prevention briefings, and John would be sitting right beside me or in the front row with his with his flight. So I I think to me it took it to a new level of uh, personal impact, and with that I think it took it to a new level of. Um, I want to say responsibility, but that's really not the heart of the word. I think blame is more uh, true to what the experience was for me. Um, blame. Uh, what did I miss? Um, how could I miss this? Um, uh, the uh, sort of um, self-critical comments of you're the mental health professional and the only one on the installation in charge of mental health and you missed it in your own friend what does what does that mean in terms of what else you're missing what does that mean in terms of what we're all missing and um, so I, I think I think that took it to to a new level and and was was a different experience for me than in the in the prior where there wasn't quite that same personal overlap into personal situations. You know, a lot of people ask, you know, when they when they come in for for treatment, you know, they want to know how. You know, we're we're, we're living mm -hmm. in a, a world of certainty, and we want to know things and 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 be yeah. predictable and what's going to come. So, I guess. It, even though it's not maybe generalizable to all people, <clears throat> I'd like to know how you managed to get through and come out the other side doing what you do. You're obviously, you know, healthy now and you're leading uh, a great effort and so on and so forth. But what were the particulars of, of moving through that, that weird period in your life with all that guilt and, and doubt and all that? Well, I think I had to, I had to, uh, it, the how wasn't always pretty, Jake. <laughs> uh, I think I had to, I had to spend some time working through some things um, that had some internal processes. Heck, it even had some externalizations as well. I take a picture of me back then, and the hair was down to the shoulders. I, I think there were different ways of expressing um, the fact that I was struggling with the rules, I was struggling with the if and when equations that I thought guided everything so neatly and cleanly. And um, I mean, really, it came to a point for me 
where I was, I was, I believe it or not, I was sitting and watching a television show and uh, it was um, a, a news documentary on uh, veteran suicide. I was alone in the basement and um, sitting there and um, really had run out of energy to change the channel and, and thought, all right, let's just watch this. And the interview, um, it was tough. It was tough to watch. It was with a VA, uh, is with the VA and talking about the problem of veteran suicide and how it's increasing and becoming even more problematic. And for me, that was a, that was a moment where I had to come face to face and say, all right, Matt, you can keep asking the existential questions. You can keep asking the metaphysical questions. Um, and you can keep treading water or you, you can, you can do something. Are you going to do something about this? Is it right and respectful to John? and your experience with John and what he's taught you to do something about this. And so at that point I decided it was, it was a bit like it was on, it was painful internally. It's just that feeling of uh, sitting in some sort of service and you're like, you feel the call to stand up and go to the front. Are you going to do it? Uh, I hopped on to usajobs.gov and um, said, well, I, I don't know what positions are in the VA. I know as a chief of mental health in the Air Force, so maybe that's what I would be. <laughs> and I put out applications for chief of mental health and was honored and um, through grace selected as, at the Saginaw VA and for them to trust me. And um, then I, I went from there, but, but, you know, really it's not like Jake, it's a, uh, it, it's been a clean before and after process. I mean, I think there's, there's still times and unique things I have to work through um, going through uh, suicide prevention month and telling my story. I, I was, I was exhausted last year. Um, so I had to learn new ways of, of caring for self um, and uh, working through that new level of, of disclosure and, and sharing. So it's, a, it's an ongoing process, but I am encouraged and fueled by the fact that I, I really believe we're on a worthwhile track here and doing something that's uh, life-changing. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that and letting, you know, yet another jerk like me drag you through this, this storytelling. Um, but uh, I think it is valuable. Uh, I, I interviewed a gal um, a while back, uh, Lois Swisher. You may have crossed paths with her. She's a, a medical doctor in Pennsylvania, and she, she shared her story. And in telling it, she said she had to hear somebody else tell their story in order for her to get through her struggles. And so I think, you know, the more often mm -hmm. we can validate other people's experiences with our own normalization of events, uh, the more people will incur in, encounter healing, you know? So I appreciate that. Thank you again for, for doing that. And if we could shift gears a little bit, I want to, I want you to discuss like 
what you did with the the veterans crisis line because you had you had a post there where you were overseeing it for some time and then more recently mm-hmm. you transitioned transitioned into this uh acting director i don't know if you're still acting director or not but um of the entire uh suicide prevention program for the VA. So um, talk a little bit about those roles and um, what's what some of the research is that you're, you're proud to, to present. And uh, you mentioned, you know, we're, we're on a worthwhile track. I a hundred percent believe that um, share, share some of the, the great steps forward and then what, like where we're going, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the, the role uh, the calling with the veterans crisis line was um, um something I view as a as an incredible blessing and, and gift in my life to, to work with that team and anything that was accomplished is is because of that team. I, the Veterans Crisis Line is the world's largest, literally the world's largest uh, crisis call center and it's a service provided by the VA. And although the majority of uh, callers are uh, veterans or family members or loved ones of veterans, uh, we, do, we do answer the call for anyone who calls. So on numerous occasions, we'll have non-veterans call and reach out for help and we'll have the honor of um, connecting them to local services and assessing their, assessing their needs. Uh, the VCL is a thousand plus uh, team members strong with three call centers in uh, New York, Georgia, and Kansas. We answer on average about 1,800 calls per day. Wow. We answer on average about 300 chat and text messages additionally uh, per day. And uh, we facilitate then care and coordination with VA medical centers. Uh, we had, we put in 500 uh, referrals for care yesterday alone wow. for 2,300 veteran callers. It, you know, the heart of the mission with the VCL is, and how it gets to suicide prevention is this. We know from the research that suicidal crisis is typically brief. We know specifically that um, the time from someone saying, I, I, am, I am suicide is, is the way that I'm going to go. It's the path that I'm going to choose. To actually then enacting it can be as brief as five to 60 minutes. And, and, and what we long for and position ourselves for in the VCL is that within such windows of time, we're there. We're available to pick up the phone within eight, 10 seconds. And we meet veterans where they're at. And we talk about and we talk through protective factors and risk factors. We talk about safety planning. And we work them through that 60-minute point in time. And we know a lot of times, most of the time, statistically speaking, when you work someone through that point in time, they don't go back to suicide. So you save a life in the present. You save a life 
in the future as well. 90% of individuals who attempt suicide live, do not go on to attempt and die by suicide following. That's a huge so number. That, that, yeah, and that's, that's really what the VCL is positioned to address uh, for our veterans. And that when I say we're making progress by saying that we do that as, as efficiently and effectively as we do for veterans who are in that vulnerable point in time, that that's really something that I'm referring to as an example, Jake. So the, the VCL, as I understand the veterans crisis line is not just a suicide hotline. Uh, it's, it's a, a resource um, avenue. It's, it's for people who are like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to connect with my primary care physician, or um, I just need uh, a group to plug into because um, something or other is going on in my life. The, the people on the other end of that phone are really guiding the caller toward whatever they need. That's not, it's not specific yeah. to crisis intervention necessarily. Yeah. That's, and that's, I just that's, learned something. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that's why we actively, intentionally changed the name in the mid-2000s uh, from suicide hotline to uh, crisis line. And in many ways, we function as uh, the world's largest um, same-day access uh, uh, off option for our veteran callers, where, they, where we then work them through a situation and then connect them, as I mentioned, with referrals to ongoing care at their closest uh, VA facility or in the community. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I actually did not know that. I just, I guess I just conflated it with suicide hotline, but um, that's really good to know. And now I can change the way that I talk about it in my own life too, which is great. Hmm. Um, so your, your work now with suicide prevention specifically, wow. Is, was there a C-130 that just went overhead? <laughs> I, I, I hope not. No. Or was I that a dinosaur? No. <laughs> I think that was a uh, truck in the background. I apologize. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, so with, the, with the, the suicide prevention program, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap between your old role and your new role. But what is the new role doing uh, separate and apart from, and what, what kind of activities are you guys pushing now? Uh, messaging campaigns, uh, involvement, what do you need? You know, like what, give us the, the bird's eye view and then I can, I can pepper in some questions that are a little more specific. Sure. Yeah. So the current role has gone from acting to uh, permanent as, as, as oh, you highlighted. Well, thanks. It's, it's um, actually uh it's an honor to work with this team. It includes the VCL and our operations and mission with the VCL. But then, then beyond the VCL, it uh, entails um, coordinating the uh, programs, policies, and research that cover uh, prevention, intervention, and postvention for veterans across the nation. So I, I think um, you mentioned, hey, those are, those are, uh, they're, they're strange terms kind to, of, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to the audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, let's walk through those. Uh, prevention really is getting at that which we can do upstream to uh, address suicide and the problem of suicide. 
suicide is a problem. It's a problem in the United States broadly. It's a problem with veterans. In the United States, the latest CDC report uh, indicated 48,000 deaths by suicide uh, annually in the United States. You take a look back at 2005 and you think in your head, where was I in 2005? All right. So wherever you were in 2005, the number of deaths in America by suicide was around 31,000. So we've gone from 31, 32,000 to 48,000 from 05 to 17 and 18. At the same time in the veteran population, go back to 2005, I was in a uh, Air Force uniform we were at about 5,000 deaths by suicide within the veteran population at that time. You go to 2017, which is our latest data from the CDC, and we were at 6,139. So across both the American population and veteran, the the number of suicides has has increased in an alarming way. 30 in the the broader country and about 20 in the, in the military community. Do you, do you have, or or any of your team have any ideas on causality, any attribution there? Hmm. You know, that, that was the very first question that I was asked uh, in the first media interview. uh, Why? I think that, um, uh, it's complicated, Jake. It's, it's a, it's different for every person. It's not fully known for any one person necessarily. Typically what we can say is it involves a combination of risk factors uh, and uh, protective factors, Um, life situations and circumstances, social situation and circumstances, world situation and circumstances, uh, three warning signs that we see right now as a case in point that we have our, that we have our eyes on. Um, unemployment is significantly up in the nation. Mm-hmm. Unemployment is up in the veteran population as well. Unemployment is correlated as a risk factor with suicide. Uh, firearm sales are significantly mm-hmm. increased this point in time this year compared to last year. Given the relationship between firearms and suicide, 70% of uh, veteran suicides are by firearms, that's, that's a concern and a risk factor right now. Third, uh, alcohol sales have, have significantly increased, particularly online alcohol sales, if you compare uh, now versus uh, recent past. Substance use, uh, substance use disorders are a risk factor with suicide. So when you take a look at what we do from a prevention perspective, we take a look at those risk factors, we take a look at proven protective factors, and we try to engage programs in the community and clinically that help to maximize protective factors and minimize or mitigate risk factors. So it, is social media 
part of this? I mean, if we go back to 2005, mm-hmm. that was when Facebook just barely emerged and uh, mm-hmm. MySpace, and then, and then you stack on Twitter and Reddit and Snapchat, you know, and everything that's accelerated since then. And I got to, I got to believe from my chair, there's some, something there that needs to be addressed with the the constant comparisons, the bombardment of information, the, the binary polarization of dialogue. Um, is that, I mean, I know it's, it's a little bit weird to like, point at this faceless thing called social media and blame it for, you know, or at least even attribute some of the, the causality to it. But are, are you seeing any, <clears throat> excuse me, are you seeing any of that in the work that you're doing? Uh, social media is a tool much like the tongue. It can be used for good. It can be used as a, as a risk factor. It's, it's all in how it's, it's all in how it's used and consumed in many ways Excellent. Uh, from stated. a prevention per, from a prevention perspective we um we do a lot of work with the media in terms of safe messaging and ways to engage safe messaging and ways to report on suicide and suicide prevention in ways that promote uh increased awareness of facts and then converting that awareness to action and engagement in productive ways. If the social media is promoting uh, things that um, are not factually accurate, if Mm -hmm. it's not giving ways to convert uh, situations into constructive engagement, then there's, there's room for harm there. If it's being used to do, do those things, to, can, to promote facts and to promote engagement, then it can be used very constructively. It sounds like more education is just needed, like more, more messaging mm-hmm. of like, be conscientious of what you consume kind of, kind of messaging. Yeah. yeah. And be conscientious, um, not only of what you consume, but be conscientious of your contributions to what others consume right. as well. Right. Yeah. Are you, are you adding to humanity or detracting from it? And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked about prevention. we got two more prongs to this, uh, this fork, I guess, if you will, I guess it's a Dr. Seuss fork. It's got three prongs. Um, but uh, we got, we got intervention and then postvention. What are, what are those? Intervention is, uh, is the types of things that you do that you might consider treatment. So we know that about 60% of uh, veterans who die by suicide have a mental health diagnosis. Taking a look at intervention then is looking at at what are evidence-based approaches to suicide care and prevention and how can we implement them on a broader scale. So some examples of, of that, we know that more broadly incorporating suicide assessment and screening uh, in the ER and in primary care is a good thing. It helps to prevent suicide. So we initiate in the VA nationwide programs to implement what we call universal screening in the emergency room and in primary care and mental health clinics, such that now almost 5 million veterans uh, within this year 
have been engaged in suicide assessment and screening. That's 5 million veterans that we've had the opportunity to say, suicide, where are you at with it? How are you doing? What can we do to help and support you? And opening that conversation um, in, a, in a structured setting uh, for each of those veterans. I, I like to think that out of 5 million, numerous, hundreds, of, of deaths have been averted because of the conversations that have been opened. Uh, we know certain treatments, certain, certain therapies, um, kind of getting into your uh, milieu, Jake, um, certain therapies are, are effective. Cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention, it's effective, especially for those who have recently attempted suicide. So what do we need to do? to make that more available and increase access to that type of intervention across the nation for veterans. So those are really the issues that the intervention um, uh, prong gets at. Are you finding great cooperation in the medical community? Um, I guess where that question arises is historically, I think there, doctors, almost like teachers, you know, resist having one more thing tossed onto their plate. You know, we don't need another screening. We don't need it. <laughs> like, I've got a busy enough job as it is. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's, you know, a, a, an excitement or, or maybe a resistance to that type of integration. I think if, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, Jake, the answer is both. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you see a um, eagerness to engage suicide prevention for our veterans, but you also see a concern for how to balance everything and all the demands that you need to uh, balance uh, with in healthcare uh, more, more broadly. Uh, VA providers are on the whole very in tune with and bought into suicide prevention as a top clinical priority. We are seeing that adherence to certain policies such as safety planning in the ER, such as um, um, universal screening um, uh, when, when uh, it presents, they're adhering to it. They're doing it um, and they're doing it well. So that's a good sign to me. That's awesome. Um, I guess, I'm reminded of something I think, I think I'm attributing it to you correctly, but uh, at that conference, did you make reference to the the notion that you wrestle with the idea that suicide is preventable? Mm. I, I, yeah, I did. And uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, explain that a little bit more. I think one of the myths about suicide and suicide prevention is that, um, if someone's determined, you really can't stop them. They're going to do what they're going to do. Right. And, and what we learn from the research is that, that that's not true. Suicide is preventable. There's meaningful things you can do at the clinical level. There's meaning things, mm -hmm. meaningful things you can do at the peer level. There's meaningful things you can do at the relational uh, or community level. I think what I really was getting at with that is um, it, it's a bit of a two-edged sword. As you say suicide is preventable, um, you, uh, you 
open conversation about all that can be done, no matter who you are, across the prevention, intervention, and postvention spheres. But you also, on the other side, go to individuals who have experienced uh, the death of a loved one or someone they care about to suicide, and it, it opens up that that um, that struggle, that wrestling match with blame, with responsibility, with what did I miss? Mm -hmm. And and that aspect of it, Jake, is where I think postvention. And the postvention prong is, is so important. Postvention takes a look at if you have experienced a suicide, if, if someone you love has died by suicide, rather than you becoming a statistic and a risk factor as part of that, how can we promote your processing and your healing through this in a way that constructively moves you forward towards growth and recovery and in turn can can serve as a stimulus for others around you or watching you to move forward constructively in in healing and health and well-being so yeah, the, the, the post yeah the postvention aspect really looks at that well and I was thinking <laughs> It's when you mentioned earlier, there's somewhere between 128 and 135, I think you said, uh, mm -hmm. people affected every time somebody dies by suicide. That's a lot of people who could potentially become risk factors themselves, right? And so, what you know, how, yeah. do, how do we reach those people and, and not just simply assuage their pain, but also yep. almost convert them into being advocates for good, you know, yes. so they can become protective for others, not just themselves. Um, that's, I never really considered that, that large ripple effect before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what, I mean, that's what I lived and that's really what I'm trying to get at when I make the statement that, um, suicide is preventable as a two edged sword on mm -hmm. one hand, there's good news. Let's talk about prevention and intervention. But on the other hand, if you forget and don't attend to postvention, then there's, there's an important population there that you lose if a suicide has occurred. I multiply 6,139 times 135 yeah. and, and think about the number of people that were impacted by those veteran suicides uh, in 2017. And if you don't address the postvention aspect of things, then um, that's, that's a problem from our perspective in suicide prevention. Yeah. And, and I think too, that it, there's, it's analogous to what we do in our field with, with talk therapy and counseling, right? Where we go, ah, oh, the client is in charge of his or her own decision-making, uh, but you have influence mm -hmm. clinician, uh, right. but respect their autonomy, but make sure you tell right. them how to do things. It's like, so we go back and forth on this and you know, it's, it's really hard to remain non-attached when you, you, you get to say, well, it wasn't my fault that they fell off the wagon, but you also don't get to claim credit when they, you know, stay healed either. And, and it's a very, it's a, it's really a mind warp when uh, at least, a, you know, in student realm, when you're learning this in graduate school, the professors are telling you like, you don't get to claim credit, good or bad. <laughs> like, yeah. well, what am I doing here then? <laughs> I could just be a bartender. Um, but right. it's, it's, it's very analogous to that, I think. Yeah, I think right. that's a great, yeah, yeah. Trying to get that messaging out to the public is even harder because they didn't sign on for any of this kind of stuff as opposed to, you know, going through graduate school for it. Um, 
and so we when we crossed over at that conference we were it was as to my understanding or my recollection it was the first time that VA had openly and willfully embraced firearm suicides um and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that but my understanding was that that was like it was kind of a taboo subject for a long time in the in the broader federal government pantheon and this is the first time they they went well wading into that uh realm and i do want to touch on this because i think it's really it's a critical component because like you said 70 percent mm-hmm. of veteran deaths are by firearm uh, suicide deaths are by firearm and we know that about 90 percent of the time firearm suicide attempts are completed so it's it's a big deal mm-hmm. and as you mentioned firearm sales are through the roof right now i attended a thing that you did yesterday online and Joe Bartosi, who is the head of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, um, he shared some information. He said in the first quarter of 2020, there were approximately 2.5 million new gun owners. And that, of course, is during time of pandemic. Lots of things are closed down. And we can reasonably presume that they many of those people didn't get training on those firearms. So safe storage is an issue, um, access is an issue, and it's not just the owners, it's the children who live in the homes of the owners and that kind of thing. Um, You know that I I work with Walk the Talk America. Our whole mission is suicide prevention in the firearms community, trying to bring firearms culture and mental health cultures Mm -hmm. together uh, so that we're not, you know, standing across this self-imposed chasm, blame shifting whenever tragedy happens. Help help the audience understand what VA is doing and what you're learning along the way that may be um, new and interesting with regard to firearm suicide and how you're balancing those two seemingly juxtaposed um, issues. Mm-hmm. I think you did a great job of reminding us and highlighting the relationship that, that does exist between firearms and suicide. Um, and it's not just veterans. So veterans, uh, we've talked about is 70%. Now you look at the U.S. population, it's about 49, 50%. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the leading cause of uh, suicide death. It's the leading means, if, if you will. Uh, and that is because of its lethality, uh, likely. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we've tried to do with, with going from those facts to then, okay, so how do we engage this issue constructively is to discern and communicate the difference between two really important words. Um, one word is restriction and one word is safety. So, Lethal means restriction, and in particular firearms, may take a look at that which we can do to, to restrict availability of firearms, to restrict access to firearms broadly. Whereas safety says, we're not going to get into the restriction debate and arguments. We're going to leave that for other subject matter experts and sectors of, um, of the population. But what we do need to talk about is safety. When it comes to safety, the key points are time and space. We know that 
because of the window I talked about uh, uh, previously with that brief period in time, right. that if there is time and space between three points, between the person, between the firearm, and between ammunition, that can save a life during those 60-minute points in time. That does save a life. So in what mechanisms can we implement that help to provide people time and space so that lives are saved? And then that's where the conversations and the programs about safe storage, about safe handling come into play. And we found that as we do this, this actually has really important implications to uh, the family as a whole beyond mm -hmm. veterans. Mm -hmm. it, it, it saves children, teenagers, family members' lives. We know that suicide has become the second leading cause of death for age group as low as 10. And when we implement lethal means safety, it helps to save their lives as well. So there's, there's some dual purposes there. So that, that's how we're, we're tackling and uh, approaching the issue. Lethal means safety. What are some other lethal means? Because I think that seems like a redundant term to a lot of cynics. It's like, well, obviously, if you died from it, it was lethal. But like, what are we talking about here? I think the obvious ones are, you know, guns, ropes, sharp objects, pills. Right? But what, what, yeah. what are we maybe not considering that people can think of if they're listening, maybe struggling themselves, or they have a loved one who is, or they got a, you know, a surly teenager who's, you know, falling into depression? Well, another one that we found that's relevant to talk about is it's, it's under this technical term and broad term of built environment or high structures. Um, um, it, it's it's uh, maybe uh, jumping from high places, mm -hmm. but we know there's applications of lethal means safety there. For example, when we put in safety measures around bridges, we learn that lives are saved. And this is where that myth of uh, suicide is not preventable comes in. Right. A lot of people say, well, won't they just find another bridge? And the answer to that is no, no. Typically the way that it, it plays out in the research shows that if you address a primary lethal means and you implement safety measures, you save lives and other mechanisms aren't employed or engaged right that's um, your 90 percent survivor rate um yeah, exactly. and i don't know i don't really know maybe you can help because i, I want to be mindful of time and honor your time too i know you got to get out of here but i don't necessarily know what constitutes a failed attempt is it walking to the bridge seeing that there's a fence and deciding not to like is that is that considered an attempt or is that just strong yeah. contemplation you know yeah, so I, because of questions like that and getting into deciphering and parsing the words so much and how maybe that can get away then from the point, I think you'll see a broader term a lot of times used, which is suicidal behaviors. Okay. And uh, that, that then helps you to understand that if anything that fits under suicidal behaviors is something to pay attention to. It's something to be aware of, and it's something to uh, think in terms of prevention, intervention, and postvention uh, with, with regard to. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But to that point though, um, 
you have people who attempt suicide and fail and we all love a failed suicide attempt kind of like we all love a failed divorce um they're 90 percent chance they have a 90 percent chance of dying some other way not by suicide and, and that's wonderful and that and that speaks to your point about you know we don't we don't necessarily know what works for every individual person but we can certainly make efforts to uh save as many lives as possible yeah and something that we see as thematic across that 90 percent um uh, population those those who have the lived experience there, there's, there's very commonly the report that um, there, there was a, there was a sense of regret almost mm-hmm. immediately, and looking back on it, then they, they're so glad that that they're alive and that they're able to to grow from their experience and to help others grow from their experience. So capturing that lived experience and and sharing that uh that sense of regret that sense of what did i do and um how others can learn from that i think is a really part of the important part of the prevention process as well that's really awesome and i i do a lot with emotional functioning and so you're talking about shame and guilt there right and you know i teach from a guy named carol izzard's work and that the, mm-hmm. the adaptive function of shame is to let you know that you failed to meet somebody's expectations, meaning you cause sadness in another person. Then guilt says, go fix it, go make it right, you know, go, make atonement. And um, I think there's a large portion of society now that says, we, we just need to get rid of shame and guilt. Just no one should feel bad about anything and, and we should just protect everybody and, uh, from these, these feelings. And you just illustrated right there a very critical use, like a very positive critical use of, of shame and guilt, which is to go, holy cow, I, I could have caused a lot of pain here and I don't want to do that to, to my loved ones, my friends. And it's, it's corrective. It's, it becomes adaptive so that you can move forward in life. Go, I don't ever want to like go through that again. And I don't want to cause harm to others. So I don't, I want to make sure that we're paying heed to the emotional functioning there. And it says, no, this is a good thing. Like we don't, we don't just want to sweep shame and guilt away from society. There, there is a use here for it. And that's, that's one powerful one right there. Um, gets yeah, back to gets back to Jake. What you were saying about social media—it's a—it's a tool. Is yeah. it used for a disorder? Or is it used for growth? Um, it can be used for growth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we wrap up here, um, one thing that I have been doing lately with these uh, podcast episodes is um, I'm borrowing from something I do in supervision in my sessions and whatnot. Is I, I ask the I go around and I say, "What's one thing that you're taking away from today?" Is something that jumps out at you or whatever but with the guests on the podcast I don't I don't want you to take something away because you're my guest what I want you to do is leave something so I would ask mm-hmm. you um, what is one thing that you would like the audience to to crystallize to to take away from this that you think is really important uh, maybe an exhortation or just a highlight or some cool stat or something like that what would, what would you leave our audience mm-hmm. I would I would offer um, the same thing that I take uh, from this. And that is a reminder as you walk me through my own life and my own development, that everyone has a role to play within suicide prevention. We all have experiences. We all have uh, points of expertise in areas where we're not expert. Suicide prevention Intervention and postvention is not restricted to certain persons, 
certain experiences, certain professions, we all have a role to play. And sometimes it just starts with the simple role of reaching out to the person right next to you and saying, uh, what can I do? How are you doing? Sometimes it starts with a simply looking inside of yourself and saying, am I going to take this step or not? It's time to make a decision. Right. So I guess my, I would offer the same challenge that I have lived through and I'm living through. And that is, uh, find your role, take the step and everyone has a role. That's beautifully put. I could not have concluded any better. So thank you. Um, Dr. Matt Miller, PhD of the Veterans Administration, um, currently the permanent director, at least permanent until he decides to do something else, of the Suicide Prevention Program for VA. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, this is basically, I think, at least your second time, at least virtually traveling to Nevada. As I understand it, you came here in January and gave our governor a, yeah. a certificate for becoming yeah. the eighth yeah. state to participate in the Governor's yeah. Challenge Program. Um, yeah. I appreciate you. Love what you're doing. Um, glad we met back in February in San Francisco. And yeah, um, yeah, I can't wait till we meet always, in person again. Always a pleasure, and really a pleasure as well working with the uh, uh, Nevada team um, with uh, the Governor's Challenge and uh, the great work that they're doing, and uh, the discussions they're having about things like lethal mean safety applied to uh, the state. In the, in the communities they're in. So great work there as well. And always nice talking to you, Jake. Thanks. Yeah, I'm actually on one of those calls this afternoon, about 1 p.m. my time, and Kim Donahue says to say hi. Um, Tell Kim I said hello, please. <laughs> I will. Thank you. And on behalf of the Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.